Welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. This is episode number 47, and Devin joins me from the windy land of Chicago. I'm actually dealing with smokes and fires here in the Portland metro area. But Devin, first, before we get started, what have you been up to, man? Uh, I, I converted my desk to a sitting desk. Uh, you look <laughs> pretty low, up. buddy. Yeah, right? <laughs> um, no, it's just uh, a change of pace. I started noticing that I've been I've had a standing desk. I've been editing on a standing desk for probably three years now. And um, uh, I just noticed that I started to not get, like, fatigued physically, but mentally fatigued for some reason. Like, I just kind of needed to change up the way my workflow is around me and change things up so that I get excited again to work on things because I kept noticing I kept coming up to my desk, doing a little bit here or there, and then walking away to go do something else or go do emails on my laptop or something like that. And it wasn't physical fatigue. It was just something about, I don't know, I got kept getting stuck in the same headspace of editing in that same spot. So since it's not like, you know, uh, beneficial to move to a whole nother room to do work, I'm like, I might as well just change my work and see if that does anything. So I went ahead and spent a whole weekend because it's not like I got some kind of fancy adjustable one. So I had to tear the desk apart and reconstruct it so that it's a sitting desk again. But uh, hopefully it just kind of refreshes things, gives me a different way to work and a different way to operate. Uh, it's not like standing desks are ever the answer. I just did it to kind of get a different feel. And the real advice, as always, with health and being in one place all the time, editing besides proper posture and ergonomics and everything else is to make sure you do both, stand and sit if you can. Get up, stand, move around, as well as you shouldn't stand all day either because that's not going to do much for your legs. So, you know, you want to be able to sit and you want to do both. Now, on your standing desk, were you using one of those, like, gel pads that you stand on top of so that your feet don't get yeah. sore oh, or something absolutely. like that? absolutely, yeah. I, I bought a fancy one for, like, 50 bucks or something like that. That's uh, They're basically, like, gel, like, memfoam kind of the thing, but... Uh, that made all the difference. If you don't have something like that, then a standing desk completely ruins uh, your knees and everything else. So it's not something you'll be able to stick with for long if you don't get something like that. Well, on my side, uh, you're, you're not missing much. More editing. I <laughs> uh, just finished up a feature length uh, that's going out to reviewers now. So if you're wondering, uh, that's called um, Shivers Down Your Spine. You can look for reviews of that popping up. I think it goes out on DVD for sale next month. Uh, I don't know. I don't get to handle that kind of stuff. But I'm still editing on another feature length film. So, God, I wish I could leave this room and do something like stand up. I don't know. That would be great. You know, uh, also, I'm in the Portland area. If you're out here uh, last night, you saw a red moon and the red moon was because uh, all the smoke from all the forest fires that are going on around us right now uh, basically clouded out the sky and created some really interesting photo opportunities. And speaking of photo opportunities, I have a rant that I would like to throw out there. Uh, my wife and I were traveling to an event uh, earlier this weekend, and uh, we show up, and I take out my camera, I take a few pictures, and I'm asked to leave the event. And I, wow. I was like, well, what's going on here? And they're like, well, uh, you have two professional of a camera. <laughs> and I, really i was like okay well do you guys have a policy available can i can i take a look and see what's going on and they're like yeah sure so they they bring me out of the event it was like a, a wine and jazz festival and uh they take me to the front and it says uh no video recording or audio recording is available at this event and that is against the terms and you're not allowed to do that okay mm -hmm. well w what about photography well we don't have anything specifically on photography but your camera is too nice like, well, okay, wow. wait a minute. So 
where does the line and that's kind of what it's not really a rant but i want to i want to kind of put this out there where does the line get crossed from being not nice enough of a camera that you're allowed to go anywhere to being too nice of a camera where you're no longer allowed into these events we have cell phones that have crazy mm-hmm. good cameras now. You know, some of them have really nice f one point eight lenses built in. Uh, that crazy Panasonic camera slash phone that was released, yeah. uh, the CM one, I think. That's a great example. Or is it the price? You know, do you set it by the price? If the camera is over a thousand dollars, does that make it uh, too pro to be available at the event? Is it interchangeable that's, lenses? Well, you know, that's such a hard line to draw because I know people who um, they just they make a fair bit of money themselves and they're a hobby. And so they have a 5D to take pictures of their family. And if that's how they choose to spend their money, that's their business. But uh, they're by no means professional. They don't get paid for their work or anything else. They just like to have a nice quality camera um, for their little hobby. And that brings up a good point because for sure the whole reason why you can't uh, record audio or record video at a venue like that is usually because they want to control distribution of that content they've created on site. And photography is always one of those that's kind of like there really isn't too many rules about it. If you bring your own equipment and you shoot your own stuff, you have rights to do whatever you want with it in most cases. Because I think photography has always kind of been behind that. um, But behind that wall of like, I'm taking this picture for myself. You can't prove that I'm going to go out and try to make money off of this picture. Um, And also, too, for something like a venue like that, I don't imagine pictures are going to at all supplement ticket sales or any kind of distribution of recordings if they're going to do that or video of the event so it seems really silly because this person's basically taking pictures and talking about your event which is pre uh, free promotional material but yet you're knocking them down because their camera's too nice so it competes with your photographers that you hired well and ironically um i was kicked out because i took a picture of a guy's business card so that i could you know i'd have a record of it Mm -hmm. because i didn't want to carry one around with me so i was using it just to like document something really quick and then i put my camera back away but at that point i was asked to leave uh they wouldn't let me back in with my camera and unfortunately uh we took a taxi down so we're not going to taxi all the way back and come back again and then mm, right. you know they won't they won't issue a refund or anything like that. It's just it's one of those things, and I, I kind of want to ask uh, other photographers out there how they deal with this. Has this happened to you? Is this an issue? And just to kind of spur some discussion on you know what your rights are as a photographer, because if they have an event and it's listed, you know, there's nothing listed about photography. Uh, can they really kick you out of an event like that and not offer you a refund for your tickets? It, it's well, it's and, frustrating. And because every time I and I've seen a few venues who try to control that, like up here in Chicago, we have Navy Pier. Navy Pier is very big on no video production or anything like that on the pier. And as far as I know, the pier is private property. You you pay for a ticket to enter and everything else. So just like Disneyland or anywhere else, they can kind of control the rules of what goes on in that place. Uh, but typically they always kind of had this rule of like. Uh, to work around it because they couldn't necessarily say, well, you can't bring a really nice camera in here. Um, but people always want to take pictures of their friends and themselves and stuff like that, having you know a nice time over at Navy Pier or any of these other venues. Uh, so they've always had a rule of tripods. You weren't allowed to put a tripod down. As soon as you put a tripod down at Navy Pier, they'll ask you to leave because they consider that now like professional equipment. Um, even though photography, as you know, doesn't typically require a tripod uh, because of the speed and technology we have with cameras and stuff like that. That's just one of those things they set up um, along with, you know, of course, no video cameras and, you know, audio recording devices or what have you. So for a venue like yours, I'm, I'm thinking that it's just 
it's got to be somebody it's obviously they can control it because it's their venue but it seems really silly and i've never heard of that before because i don't get what's at a loss um most of the time too when you compare photos from people who attend a venue as opposed to a photographer that's hired the photographer that's hired is always better and not typically just because they're better at their job that's why they get paid or hired to do it but because they're granted access to angles and locations that most people aren't so when there's like a concert venue a lot of photographers get to be right there at the front of the stage with, um, you know, the bouncers and the, uh, the bodyguards and other venue people, as opposed to most of the audience has to be held back a bit from the stage, depending on different venues and stuff. But that's a location where behind the stage, on the side of the stage, even sometimes on the stage, you know, your photographer is always going to get better pictures because they have better access as opposed to some fan in the crowd taking pictures or doing this or that. And then at the same time, too, uh, you describe using your camera in w what could be like the, you know, it, no way to be interpreted as a malicious way of trying to steal. Yeah, probably the most lame method possible. Yeah. You know, I had a GH4 with me. It's in my satchel. It's usually always with me wherever I go because that's how I roll. And then, you know, you get it out. Oh, I need to, you know, take a picture. I probably should have grabbed my cell phone and I wouldn't have been kicked out. Sure, but sure. But the thing is, is when they say that your camera is too professional, I mean, that's such a arbitrary line to draw. And, it, you know, now I'm, we have I'm cell phones. They're drawing, the line. they're drawing the line, I think, at the whole lenses. Seeing that it's it's something that looks like it has a detachable lens, which is still silly because, you know, my own mother, who's just a hobbyist in photography, has a T2i. And I know several people who, you know, <laughs> as a family, they buy T2i's, they buy Canon Rebels, they buy little Nikons uh, just because, oh, we want a better camera that's better than a point and shoot. And we want to have the features to add lenses in the future if we decide to or not. Most of them don't. But. Still, it, it's like this is these are very common cameras to have. And it sounds like to me, if you had something as small as a GH4, it's not even like a big giant 5D or anything like that, but a GH4, I'm guessing they're drawing the line at the fact that it looks like it has interchangeable lenses. And I just, I think that's ridiculous. I've just never heard of that before. Well, and I think if I'd uh, had my Olympus Air with me, no one would even question <laughs> anything. You know, I could have slapped a lens on that and shot. And that's the exact same sensor as is available yeah. in the GH4. Uh, just something like a quick discussion thing. And th that that is really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, I'd love to hear from you guys on what you think about it. Devin and I, basically, I think we're in agreement. It's kind of BS and uh, uh, they should really have something posted on those sorts of things. Have you been kicked out of an event before? Let us know. I swing over to the YouTube page and uh, write a comment or something like that. Now, enough about these random rants. Let's go ahead and move on to the news. Time for the news. First up on the list here is actually a monitor. And normally we don't get too excited about monitors unless they're big, they're 4K, like the one I'm looking at right now that's lighting my <laughs> entire face. But this guy is kind of sexy, and the reason it's sexy is because it has no bezel at all. This is the Asus PB258Q, and it is a frameless monitor. Uh, the resolution in this guy is 2560 by 1440. It does support DisplayPort as well as DVI and HDMI inputs, and it is a 100% RGB-capable monitor. Uh, this thing is really sexy. There's a link in the show notes here to PC Perspective. You guys should definitely check those guys out if you're into computer hardware. But, Devin, what do you think? The perfect oh, monitor is... for a multi-monitor setup? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this would even make a great monitor if you're just if you only have one monitor that you can get. Uh, 27 inches is nice, and 1440p at 27 inches 
uh, is a great size, but still 25 inches with 1440p. I don't think that's going to be too small uh, like it is if you get a you know 27 inch. That's 4K. I consider that kind of small and hard to read unless you're scaling stuff up. And then we've talked about how that never works right. Uh, <laughs> but in this case, I think that 25 inches at 1440p is just on the edge of being too small. So I think uh, as long as you don't have too much of a problem with your eyesight, it should be something that's very easy to read off of and work with without having to scale and do messy things like that. Um, I don't know the quality of the colors. I mean, it does say 100% RGB. Uh, of course, I'd like to see it in person because it doesn't look like this is an IPS panel. I'm guessing this is a... Uh, it is an IPS panel, panel, in fact. It so, is IPS? Yes. Absolutely. Okay. Because this is just an exciting price for me. And it's interesting to see this monitor come out of nowhere because... Um, uh, 25 inch monitors are usually around 300 or so, maybe 350, uh, for a really nice one that's IPS, but they're never 1440p, they're always 1080p. And so, this has got to be one of the first times I've seen a 25 inch 1440p that makes me go, Oh man, like forget dual monitors, let me get three of these because that would work really well. I've never had a problem with bezels. Uh, I know that uh, DJ does it drives me DJ nuts, man. Hates bezels, he cannot stand them, he has nightmares about them every night, but. Uh, this is one of those where I would definitely use this to tack on, especially too. It seems like it comes with a decent stand. You can just flip it and go vertical, which even though I do video editing, I love vertical monitors. I love flipping uh, one or two of my monitors vertical, um, even though I may be alone in that. I think it's great for when you're scrolling through a lot of footage where your eye doesn't have to scan as far left and right. It's mostly an up and down activity. So for folder organization, as well as like also just for documents, if you're going through a bunch of notes for an edit or something like that, it's really nice to have this monitor off to the side uh, that's vertical. And that 1440p too, that, that's perfect for me. That, that makes me really on edge about... Like, I know, this thing's really sexy, man. These, uh, grab one of these to upgrade my 1080p as it currently stands. Well, and I've got, I've got one that's under 1080. It's, um, you know, that 1336 or whatever it is, whatever's yeah. under 1080. I've got one of those... Uh, and I should probably should update that. And now you're making me really now <laughs> the question, watering because this looks like a really good. Deal. Yeah. The price on this is really sexy. Having no bezel is really nice. Um, I I'm with you, Devin. He described me perfectly. I do not <laughs> like having a divider line. The biggest issue I have with multi-monitor setups is that distracting chunk of plastic in the middle. And yes, I know three monitors <laughs> that, that changes things. Now you have a full monitor in front of you, but still, as you look around in your periphery, it's sort of frustrating and irritating to me uh the other thing is i'm not really i'm not really the type of editor that enjoys having a second panel completely dedicated to video playback i prefer right. my 4k panel where i can actually frame my video in my timeline and everything else all on a single screen and that works better for me but Devin, you have multi-monitors how do you use that for editing um so, you know, everyone's a little different. So what I've got is in the main, I've got a, a decent, I mean, it's one of those that shipped out of Korea with a name like Shamina or something like that, or, um, you know, they, they've Cat got Leaf. three or four different names. Yeah. Changling. They got like a bunch of different names, but I got a 27 inch IPS 1440p, 1440p IPS is just my new standard 27 inches. And that's my center. Um, I would take the camera and show you the other ones, but actually, since I've converted to a seating position, I haven't had time exactly to set them up the way I want them. Uh, on, yeah, I know. Funny, right? Uh, you called me out at the worst time. And on the left, I usually have um, something I'm, I'm going to upgrade to 1080p eventually, but I have a vertical monitor. And then on the right, I've usually got another 24-inch 1080p monitor. How I use all of this, uh, my left side, my, I make vertical, and that's where I put all my source footage, clips, cuts, scenes, 
all the organization folder, all that kind of stuff. Um, unless I'm moving out of assembly and I'm moving into editing, then it'll be usually like all the, um, uh, the properties of the edit or the clip. So like size information, like if you're an after effects, it's going to be like all of your whatever. So, and then in the main is just going to be my timeline. I know a lot of people like to stretch timelines across their bezels. I can't really operate that well that way. Cause my mind kind of just sticks to one monitor at a time. I don't really work across monitors if that makes sense. Uh, but I'll have a kind of a basic edit window. And then to the right, I've got a full size program output. If I had 4K like he did at 48 inches, I could probably be okay with just having a 1080p that's nicely sized in the corner. Uh, but since I don't, I like my 1080p to be a pretty significant size. So it makes it easier for me to really see every pixel. So if I've got dead pixels or a pixel that's miscolored because of a problem with the sensor, which has happened on some of the older Canon cameras I've used, it's more easy for me to identify it. I've also taken the signal I send to the right monitor uh, and split that off to uh, a 20 or a 48 inch TV that's in the room that just it plays simultaneously. So I can always check back to a TV just to see how does this look on a TV as opposed to a monitor? Because I got a special color calibrated monitor and then I just got an ordinary piece of crap TV. And so that's kind of one way that I do my coloring just to kind of like double check and be like, you know, it's always good, just like with audio, to try it on different speakers, try it on different sound systems. When you're color correcting, try it on different monitors, try it on different display devices, throw it on your phone, see if it looks funny on your phone, uh, just to help you dial it in since I don't have like $50,000 color correction monitors. So <laughs> I try to work with what I've got, but that's how I do my multi-monitor setup. I know a lot of people just do duals. I really love having three and I'm probably in a minority there. And I'm not saying it necessarily speeds up my workflow. Uh, it just kind of helps to spread things out to make it easier for me. Having a full-size program output, I do find super important since I don't have 4K. So that may be something to think about if you're not rocking a 4K beast like DJ over there. Now, for uh, uh, people watching the video, this isn't very good for the audio no. listeners, but I'm going to go ahead and share my screen right now. This is a timeline I'm working on. And you can see, like, my timeline is fairly significant. I've been doing Foley work on this, so there's tons of audio that's being worked on all over this. And then on what, top of what that, what you can't see if you're if you're listening is the fact that the text is so tiny on a YouTube video. It looks like text for ants. It is literally you could tell that not only does he have ten tracks basically viewing filling up half the screen, but in that corner where he's got his program output, that is a full 1080p output out of his 4K monitor that he's three inches from. Exactly. It's really nice to have that much real estate for a 1080p image. And I know this is a, an older layout that's not super popular, but I prefer to go back to CS 5.5, which is your effects slash uh, editing and media browser on the left, your clip pane on the top left, and then your preview window over here and your playback window over here. Uh, that gives me all the real estate I need to really work around the project and to kind of get things going the way I want it. I know it's so it's it's that's, old. That's the difference I'm noticing here is that you on your clip paint, I'm sure by default, unless you need otherwise, uh, you basically just have a file-like view where you're seeing names. And I've actually started to adopt the thumbnail view that they introduced. Really? In yeah. Okay, tell so me that's more. Why having a vertical monitor works really well for me uh, because I'm usually working off of several thumbnails. Now, if it's like I'm in a certain scene that has like 100 shots and all I really care about is like jumping in between a bunch of them, then I'll switch because it's really easy to switch between the two views. But most of the time when I'm doing assembly for uh, like a news story or something like that, 
I, I love being able to just run the mouse over the box and being able to scrub the clip without clicking anything. And I love being able to click on it real quick and play it and then tag in and out points and then press period and it imports into the timeline. So I found a really fast workflow with the thumbnails. So most of the time I'm using them unless I specifically really need to go through a bunch of clips. So to each their own, but that's why having a monitor dedicated to source footage for me makes a lot of sense because my source footage takes up a lot more room when it's in thumbnail view. One of the things I, I do that really helps me get through an edit is actually uh, clip naming and, and uh, numbering. So when I'm working on a scene like this, they'll be consecutive until the next shot. So the numbers will be in order for each shot until I get to the next round of shots, which uh, unless you are really bad and then I put them into folders and everything <laughs> else. But um, by doing that, then if you create a folder for each one of those, you click on the folder, it'll give you the thumbnail view when you open the folder and then you'll go back to the mm -hmm. file view when you close that. So for the most part, I only need the file view. And I know this is a weird way to edit, but I always feel that the last take is going to be the best take. And so that's not wrong. No, I know, know it's not completely wrong, you're right. but I, I'm, I like, I'm kind of lazy in that manner. So when I'm going through my edit, I don't even look at the first four or five shots of a take. I just go to the very last one. I look at it. If it's okay, I use it and that's it. And then I move on to the next thing and I continue to do that throughout. And then when I need to really like find something, for example, maybe they flubbed their dialogue here or there was a mic issue and I need to pull dialogue from another section or something like that. Then I start looking at the different clips and kind of finding my way through that. So uh, just preferences. I don't know which one's right. Good point. You bring up a good point because, uh, Usually I go for the last one too if I'm working on a creative project with you know actors and scenes and things like that. Um, I will and, and you're right, I know almost always goes to the last clip because normally too, if I'm directing it, I you know, this is digital, we get to review right away. We don't do one for safety in most cases. So I know the last clip is when I kind of got everything right or when I was kind of like, this is as good as we're going to get all this to work. Not necessarily the actor's fault, just in terms of like lighting, sound and everything else. This is as good as it's going to get. And then we move on. And Chances so are really I wouldn't have shot it again if I thought it was good. So I'm relying on previous DJ who's shooting this mm -hmm. to say like, well, I thought that was shitty. So I want you to go on and do that again. You don't, you know, of right. course you don't tell your talent like, oh, you did a horrible job. I want you to do it again. You say, well, that's great, but I want you to emote a little bit try more. This. Can you try this? You know, and then when you say, okay, next shot and you set up for the next shot, you think you've got what you need. And chances are right. you do because you are looking for something in particular. You don't remember now, but you do know that your last shot was the one that you said, oh, okay, that's good enough, let's go, you know? And that's, like mm -hmm. like you said, 90% of the time. Uh, I, I don't talk to a ton of editors. I know probably seven personally, and they don't have anywhere near the same workflow I have, so it's really interesting to kind of talk to mm -hmm. other people and figure out how they get through large projects and how they edit. And when I show my timeline off, a lot of people are like, what is this like 1995 seriously you have you know um, you're using text instead of you know video images and you're yeah. using the 5.5 layout instead of you know the new mm -hmm. modern layout uh, right no 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 and and because you're right if you have a very intense workflow by the fact that the last five weeks we've been talking you say what have i been doing this week i've been editing the same damn project oh my god uh, but uh other editors i know who have a lot of time uh, they can start to explore other things uh, like um, uh, split framing. There was a good video that popped up on YouTube, Vimeo, or something like that a few weeks ago about how um, uh, Fincher and a few other directors 
uh, will take two performances from actors. They'll they'll stage the frame so that they can make a clean cut in between the two actors uh, in terms of just masking of cropping. And then they can affect the timing of the two actors interacting with each other, as well as pulling completely different takes from both actors into the same scene. And so uh, if if you have a bunch of time to edit or you are like a professional editor and it's like that's your only job, that's all you do. Uh, then yeah, I've seen, you know, that's where you could look at all the takes and start to be like, well, he said this one line a little bit better. So let's see if I can work that into a cut and stuff like that. So it depends on how aggressive your workflow is. And also too, it depends because DJ shot it. DJ knows exactly how he wants to edit it. As opposed to if you're an editor for another director, uh, you know, you, you bring your own ideas and your own style and you'll want to see all the clips because maybe for your sake of assembling it, you go, you know what, this wasn't the last take. And this wasn't the take the director liked, but this is the take that seemed to play into the scene a lot better once you see the whole scene as one piece. So there's a lot of that kind of stuff too. But when you direct it yourself and you're editing what you're directing, you kind of already know. And so I edit the same way with pretty much everything I do too. It's just uh, something I noticed a long time ago and I kind of have always stuck with as an editor. Uh Really interesting. Um, definitely something to think about when you're editing. And, you know, there's a lot of videos where people discuss different edits. Uh, there was actually a great YouTube video. I don't remember where it was at, but uh, the guy's talking about how you can learn more from a, a bad movie than you can from a good movie. And that's mm -hmm. because as you watch the edits, you see the mistakes that are made in both the filmmaking process as well as the editing process. And you can kind of remember those and then realize, hey, don't do this. Now, that's enough about editing because that's a subject we could <laughs> dive into for an entire hour. Let's move on yeah. to some rig talk here. And first up, I've got the Loki. This is a Kickstarter project that looks suspiciously similar to Elder Kron's pocket rig. I've got a link to that. Uh, they're asking $500 for this guy. Uh, the Elder Kron pocket rig, which has pretty much everything but the dolly feature, is about $300. Devin, mm -hmm. what do you think of this? Is you know, have we seen enough of these transformer rigs to realize that maybe they aren't all they're cracked up to be? Uh, yeah, I'm definitely not a fan. I mean, first off, I'm a little surprised at the price they're asking because this is the first time I've seen another product come out that is uh, outpricing uh, the Eldercron. Because I don't know, usually I've known them for being pretty pricey for stuff that I think should be a little less. So the fact that they're asking for less at the same time. Any, any of these folding rigs, they never lock into place, and that's because they're cheaper, and they usually don't have certain uh, mechanical elements like uh, rosettes, which um, a lot of rigs from a wooden camera and stuff like that use to make sure that the pieces that you put in place and lock down stay exactly where they're at. So you can manhandle the entire rig by that one point. Any one of these is like... If you can get it cheap enough, it's a great thing to start out with. If you've got nothing else, you've just bought your first camera, you're like, I just need something that kind of gets it on my shoulder. I need three points of contact. These will work. They just don't typically last. And then after a while, you'll start to kind of want more. You'll kind of want something that's a bit more standard. Uh, as DJ is holding in his hands is one of those that I actually had bought too. Here a long is a time classic ago. example, guys. And, uh, and for the podcast for listeners. 25 bucks? Uh, yeah, it's 25 to $60. This is uh, commonly known as the spider rig or the rig movie shoulder mount study kit. Um, you know, any of the SEO that they can put into it. And mm -hmm. you're absolutely right, Devin. You know, no rosettes on this. It's all thumb tightening. This thing is... On plastic washers. Yeah, plastic washers. Sorts, sort of floats around a bit. Uh, they do make a 
tougher version of this it's a little more solid uh, that was sold uh, in the late 2000s for roughly uh, 250 bucks but it ended up developing into this thing and most of these you know they do a little bit of what you want but as soon as you get them you realize well wait a minute this is only wetting my whistle for something much nicer than this particular right. rig and, and it just doesn't cut it so if you add wheels to this is that going to make it better no, no, no. I, I don't think so at all. I really don't think this Kickstarter is worth it, in my opinion. Um, I mean, I, I don't want to poo-poo on somebody who's trying to maybe start up a, a film company of rigging and stuff like that. But what they've proposed here has been handled in many different ways. Um, and they really haven't brought anything unique to the table. And from the pictures, I'm really not seeing anything that looks anything more rugged um, than what we have from other products. The big thing, like I said, is that the moment you start, you know, holding your, putting your camera on this, if you have a T2i, it may not be that big of a deal. But as soon as you start adding maybe an audio recorder, a video light, something like that, you'll start to see like this stuff kind of like, you know, not really hold up the way that you want it to. And you may be start, you know, to be like, hey, I don't have enough screw points to add on like a microphone or a video light or something like that. And you'll start to want more out of your rig. If you're a rig kind of guy, I am a rig kind of guy. DJ is pretty much not. DJ just prefers to have his cage and that's it because he likes to be quick and nimble. Now you're bringing me into something I wrote in the show notes and I kind of wanted to talk about a little bit. Um, I started out and I've got a couple of examples here besides that uh, weird flexible thing as I reach down to the side here for example is the lattice cage rig uh this was supposed supposed to be like a interchangeable system where you hooked on different parts and shoulder rigs and stuff like that and then you place your 1dc inside of this guy here below me is another cheap sort of rig system this is one of the uh early originals i believe uh, where it was just a square around your camera with a manfrotto mm -hmm. 501 plate all of these things have kind of been in my collection and i've bought all of them thinking i'm going to use them all the time turns out i don't use them nearly as much as i thought i would but what i am using these days and i'm really happy with are these small little form factor cages. Uh, they've completely taken the place of a full-size rig for me because you can build them up when you need to, but otherwise, it's basically just a crap load of attachment points for your camera with an HDMI protector lock system of some kind. Uh, this one right here, for example, uh, is on the GH4. It covers pretty much all the GH4, has a cutout for the battery, gives you plenty of mounts, and it has a handle if you want to add it on top uh, to make this more of a rig sort of feel. But otherwise, you know, you put this on a tripod, you go, you take it, you handheld. It doesn't feel any different than really holding the camera itself. Real nice. And here is the small rig, uh, same sort of concept, cage, for the Sony a7S. And I've got this built up a little bit. This is their new one, by the way. Uh, they've sent out a prototype to me. Uh, there's still a few things that need to be fixed on this, including uh, this lip right here isn't quite high enough to put a full uh, shoe on there. But, uh, you know, this is nice. And I can break it down to where it's just uh, threads on the side and the camera body itself. And when I want to do something like this and turn it into a rig, I can do that. It's a little bit more... I know we're just complaining about transformer rigs in general, but you know it's a little more transformative. Like you can build it up or tear it apart. Now, but, but defend your case, rigs, man. Bolting. Well, in that case, you're bolting uh, things to it, and that's why it's a bit more structurally sound in terms of manhandling uh, your rigging. But uh, for me, I, I'm huge on uh, shoulder-mounted cameras, and I probably stand in a minority on that. But 
uh, the biggest thing I noticed with DSLRs and people who first shoot with DSLRs and young DSLR filmmakers is that there's a certain shake to them. I mean, DSLRs already come with Jello, and then when you add, it's hard to describe, but uh, the best way I can is if you think of a plane, uh, they have a tail fin that controls their yaw, which is kind of a you know turning left and right kind of a thing. Um, I notice a lot of yaw shake on cameras when people handhold them in front of themselves, as opposed to when they're attached to a shoulder. If they're longer, you don't get a yaw like that anymore. You'll get turning, you know, like panning and pivoting, but you don't get like this little kind of shake that you get from a handheld DSLR. And Jello uh, accentuates that shake and that motion that I see. So for me, it's a lot easier if I shoulder mount it. Uh, whether throwing weights on it or whatever else will help too to make it feel like a bigger camera. Uh, just because I know a lot of filmmakers are looking for that cinematic look, that film look, whatever you want to call it. Part of that is that a lot of those older movies had huge cameras that weighed a lot, and so therefore they didn't have small micro vibrations or anything like that. They lumbered around like big cameras, uh, which also helped to kind of make it a little smoother and not look like some kind of, I don't know, shaky Blair Witch kind of a thing. So it depends on what look you're going for. Um, as much as like small rigging like that is great for adding attachments and things to your cameras, and I've used cages before for adding things and making it quicker for me to pull stuff off a tripod and put stuff here or there. When I'm shooting stand-ups and stuff like that, I really prefer something on my shoulder uh, that helps to keep the camera locked down. And that's not saying you can't shoot great footage without a shoulder rig, or you can't shoot that style without a shoulder rig, because DJ has spent so much time holding these DSLRs that his footage does not look like shaky and have a lot of yaw wiggle in it and everything else. It looks like a handheld shot, you know, in my in my opinion, what a handheld shot mostly should look like or what people try to achieve with a handheld shot, um, which is still kind of this, you know, you're not like making the audience sick with jello. Uh, but you're still kind of making them a part of the scene and the film. And so as DJ show, he, he locks onto that camera and he holds it tight to try to make sure that it's uh, nice and tight and narrow. So I prefer rigging for that because I'm not that good with a camera in my hands. DJ has a lot more experience with holding cameras and making sure that they don't shake the way he wants them to. Now, there's two tricks um, that I rely on. And I know Devin has frowned on this in the past when we've talked about it. One <laughs> is I find myself shooting at chest level. I know that is not necessarily a... Uh, a popular way to shoot. A lot of people will disagree <laughs> with my method of shooting. But if you hold the camera like this with your arms kind of tucked in, that body support means that you have to really um, move your chest around in order to actuate the camera as opposed to having it out here where your hand's kind of shaking around. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that because I'm looking down like this, I'm now pinching that zone in even further than I was before, and that helps to stabilize that just that much more. Mm -hmm. The other thing I do, and this is, I don't know if this is appropriate or not, but I do it anyway. I don't care if you don't like it. Um, I ramp up to 60p when I'm shooting handheld many times. And the reason for that is because if I do get a little bit of wobble, uh, warp stabilization is still an option. And having 60 frames per second as opposed to 24 frames per second means that you don't have to deal with sort of that blurry tween bit that you're normally having to deal with. And you can add motion blur in post. So you can do your warp uh, stabilization for something if you really need to clean it up. You punch in a little bit so that you have a little bit of room to wiggle around. And then you go back to 24p with uh, basically a little bit of motion blur on your warp stabilization. Those combinations for me has really made a full-size shoulder rig not necessary for the most part and if i do want something that's steady 
I put it on a tripod or a monopod. Um, a monopod uh, shooting, especially if you're shooting a lot of scenes, you're trying to get it done fast. Uh, for me, a stable platform like a monopod is just about as good as a tripod. You, you know, you put a handle on there and you kind of lean into it, and now you can pan and tilt smoothly without having to worry about it, and you're basically on a stable base. Um, you can do wonders with a monopod with a little bit of practice and handheld as well. You know, if you watch some of the uh, better YouTubers out there wandering around following. Uh, someone talking the entire time and you see that their cameraman is doing a really smooth job and then you look at how he's doing it he's doing the exact same thing I do he holds his you know elbows in close to the chest mm -hmm. maybe looking down or you know keeping it maybe in this zone right here so that the camera and your body in general are as small of a space as possible now Devin pick me apart man <laughs> Well, it's it's one of those things that if it works then it doesn't matter really how it got done if it was efficient um it's in most of the most of the time uh, when things are shot that way. Uh, it's just one of those that I can tell uh, that it's not shot cleanly. And if you know, like in terms of going back to your sixty frames a second, uh, depending on the style and what you're going for, because at the end of the day, too, you got to think about the content. It's whatever the style works for you. There's no one way to shoot a video. Um, but in most cases, I wouldn't shoot at sixty if I'm going to not do slow mo work because. Uh, for me, that screws up my motion blur because then I'm doing 120th. I can I can tell myself maybe it's only because I shot it. Maybe it's all subconscious, but I can tell myself that like the motion blur doesn't look right. It doesn't look like a 20. So even kind of motion, motion blur. blur in post, uh, does that bother you? Can you, does that really stand out enough that you notice it and it drives you nuts? It you know what 80 percent of the time no, it really doesn't. Um, it's just one of those that I, it's one of those things I don't want to sit there and tweak with forever. I, I try to avoid any post work that I can. I try to get everything done in camera, e uh, even if it's going to take me a little bit longer during production to get done. Um, but you know, there's, there's constraints. It's not like I haven't used those techniques myself. It's not like I haven't done that kind of stuff. Um, but sure, shooting at 60 and then give, so there's more temporal information for the warp stabilizer to use. That is a great way to work around the issue. Um, and two, Warp Stabilizer in Adobe is amazing at helping with the Jello problem, which is the biggest thing that I really think gets shown off when you're doing handheld work without a rig is how much Jello these cameras have uh, if they're using a CMOS sensor and they're not, they don't have a global shutter on them. So it's, it's one of those that it, those techniques I try to avoid, I try not to use because for one reason or another, once I'm done with my project, I can go back to that shot and be like, yep, this is exactly how I did this. And I know why, because it doesn't look exactly the way I want it to. So every everyone to their own, but I wouldn't mess with shutter rates unless I'm messing with slow-mo, and I wouldn't mess around with, um, and I've done it before where I, I hold it close to me. Like, that is a valid technique. That does work. Um, it's just one of those that it, it tends to wear me out. Maybe I'm a wuss. I don't know. But having it on the shoulder where it's much more comfortable, I feel like I've got more control over the camera, um, it makes me more relaxed, and I think it makes me work better. So to each their own. But there are some locations where I've been at certain venues where it's super tight. You're in this crowded convention center um, and you still have to go around and get all these shots. And so then I don't bring a shoulder rig because I don't have room for it. I got to like just keep everything in a little bag to my side and pull it out and get the shots when I can. Um, as opposed to when I go to some other kind of convention for doctors or something like that, they've got tons of room because it's not like they're crowded with millions of fans. So I can get a shoulder <laughs> rig, I can get an on-camera light, I can get all the setup and gear I want. So uh, for me, I feel like it's an easier time. I feel like uh, if I'm doing that, the reason why I'm doing it is because something else is preventing me from rigging or bringing my gear. Uh, but like I said, 
it's all kind of a style and a look for what you want. I know some people who really enjoy kind of that cell phone look. That I mean, that's another part is that it looks like a cell phone. Wait a minute. Did you just call us. my shooting cell phone work, man? <laughs> I, I, feel, I felt that slap across the face, buddy. <laughs> Oh, I'm saying, I'm saying that 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 shaking and that kind of like y'all wiggle, I notice all the time with cell phone videos. Like if you watch, you know, whatever on YouTube, Break.com, something like that, and you notice that most of the videos subconsciously you go, that was taken on a cell phone, and I and the reason why is because it's got this like yaw jello to it. It's got this like kind of wiggle z-axis and tilt thing that's going on, and it just doesn't feel stable and it doesn't feel solid or professional. And so for a lot of filmmakers. And like I said, DJ's found a way to work around this. He doesn't have these problems. But for a lot of early filmmakers who are making their first action film or something in the woods with some airsoft rifles or whatever, I notice those little jello things. And that's not important for them because they need to work on story, character, and everything else if that's what they want to do is be a filmmaker. But I'm saying that for me personally, I'm like, I'm trying to get away from that look, trying to make sure that it doesn't come off as a cell phone look unless some kind of viral ad campaign or something like that calls for it. Now, that's enough about rigs <laughs> yeah. in general. We've kind of dug our own hole there. Beat it to death. Let's move on. To, yeah, let's move on to some more news here. Uh, this thing is kind of interesting, and actually, uh, Sony's kind of been talking about this off and on. The A7 uh, Mark II, actually the A7R Mark II, excuse me, because R stands for resolution, S is for sensitivity, and no letter at all stands for what? I don't know, but... Uh, <laughs> The A7 series in general, uh, Sony's been touting its ability to autofocus using a Metabones adapter with Canon glass. And there's a video link here. Uh, I believe this is Gizmodo. So uh, swing over to the show notes and check that out. But uh, really interesting at the quality of performance you're getting out of Canon glass on an A7 body. Uh, In general... I've been disappointed with the AF system from my Sony A7S and the A7 and the A7R. Uh, in the past that I've tested them, they, they didn't seem like they had very good autofocus. Devin, do you think this is getting better? Are we on the way up for autofocus with uh, Sony cameras? I think so. I think so. I mean, it's just got so many megapixels. Gosh. My, my do we need boggled. all those megapixels, man? I mean, 36.4. No, I don't think you need that many megapixels. But, you know, um, uh, more can't be bad, right? Um, uh, no, I'm uh. sure there's a lot of sports applications that would be great for it. Um, and other things where you want detail over sensitivity. Like, I understand their line, the way that they make it. It makes sense to me. Uh, it's interesting, though. This Metabones thing definitely opens things up for people to grab a Sony, maybe as a second camera. All that, to me, spells good for Sony because... I think Sony has a really hard time selling lenses. Maybe that's just me, but a lot of photographers I run into and video guys, the ones who even have Sony cameras will not have Sony glass. They'll always be using adapters with it. So you say the performance of focusing is poor, where I've seen the performance is pretty good if you have a Sony glass, but most people don't. They're like using, you know, other adapters and Canon and Nikon and stuff. The like native that. glass so, yeah. available for Sony cameras, especially uh, FE mount, which is the full frame E mount, mm-hmm. is wacky. You know, you have like 35 millimeter f2.8 primes, and you have like yeah. a 55 millimeter f1.8, and they're they're setting you back just about as much as like a 24.14 or a 51.2. And, and what's going on and, with and that? It's, I mean, it's Sony. Well, and it's, it's a Sony brand, which so far doesn't have the kind of uh, name that like Nikon or Canon has. So, well, they don't stamp know how it with Zeiss every time something comes out. So, I mean, 
Right. Well, you don't know how long that investment is going to be worth much because um, they've still they've recently been playing with uh, their formats in the full frame E mount and everything else, as opposed to Canon and Nikon have been playing the long game where they kind of stick to one format for a long time uh, to make sure nobody feels like they're being uh, duped out of their money. But in this case, I think that it's just that's a great thing um, for Sony because I do think that they're they are mostly marketing the R as kind of a more sports camera, right? Because it's not low light. They're mostly kind of like high resolution. It's for um, you know doing landscapes and stuff like that. It's for sporting events. Uh, what's the shutter speed on it? Isn't it pretty high as well? Uh, yeah, this has uh, the silent electronic shutter speed, so I think it can go all the way up to one sixteen thousandth, just like uh, you can on the GH4. Yeah. If I'm correct, uh, it. I think it's sort of a camera to compete with the 5DS and that mm-hmm. whole uh, the Nikon D810 and and that whole range. Uh, it's really cool that they are providing uh, that good of autofocus with Canon glass. And you know what? Sony could really steal a lot of market share if they did that for both Nikon and Canon because if you were able to get as good or you know almost as good a AF speeds out of an A7R Mark II or an A7S or an A7, mm-hmm. you know that means okay I can go buy that body for roughly the same price as I can buy my Canon body. I have this range of three to choose from whether I want high sensitivity and low light, I want higher megapixel, or I just want an in between camera that's sort of good all around. And the video mm-hmm. features that are available, they're adding 4K yeah. to all these. You know what? That's actually sort of tempting. Uh, Sony could really mop up shop if they were moving in and providing AF for both Nikon and Canon glass. Even it's Canon not glass. Like, it's not like the 5Ds are going to be coming with 4K. No, so, no. And we're probably not going to see that for another couple of years. Yeah, so that's a huge check for Sony for somebody to go, well, I want to do some video work and I want to have a 4K capable camera, but I've got a bunch of Canon glass because I bought a 5D Mark II a long time ago. You know, it, it, it puts it makes it perfect right in that price point. And the autofocusing does seem really good to me. I mean, it's not seeming as fast as like a GH4 with natural glass or anything like that. But for a system that's using contrast-based focus and it's going through an adapter to a non-native lens, it looks really impressive to me. It's not the fastest thing in the world, but I go, oh, this looks usable. This looks like something that I could walk around and do shooting with and feel kind of like I've got, you know, a camera that's supposed to work together as opposed to attaching a bunch of random parts. Now, speaking of useful and the GH4, there are rumors out there that the GH5 is on its way, and this is in the title of the show, so I figure we probably should talk about it a little bit. GH5, <laughs> uh, rumors.com has a little post mm-hmm. indicating that we should expect to see the GH5 coming at some point in 2016, probably the first or second quarter of 2016. Devin, what do you think we're going to see for specs? Do you think they're going to go uh, some kind of 6K or 8K resolution video, or are we going to see an H.265 variant, maybe some other features that they could add? Um, it's see, it still feels early for H265. Uh, it shouldn't be, but for some reason, it still feels early to me that a camera would include that on board because there's so few chips. I know there's a few out there, but it still just seems pretty scarce. It'd be great for that. I don't think they're going past 4K. I don't think that that's going to be an option on the camera. Uh, just because remember, it's an ex- exponential process to even go 5K instead of 4K is a huge amount of more information. And if they don't first get the bit rates up, then the 5K part is pointless because you're going to lose so much detail information uh, when you compress H.265 or H.264, which is temporal compression, meaning that the more crap moves, 
uh, the less detail you get out of the codex. So it's one of those where in order to go 5K, we'd already have to jump over to specialized solid-state memory. We wouldn't be using SD cards well, anymore. Well, hold on so. a second, though. H.265, um, instead of H.264, the compression rate is such that you can go up to 8K and still sustain roughly the same bit rate that you're looking at for 4K in H.264. So if the pipeline is the issue, no, it wouldn't no, it be more about... No, it's not that good. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's, it's like 1.4 to 1, isn't it? So it's it's not twice as much data. It's like one and a half times as much data someone you yeah. know, check my math on this because i could be completely wrong but i think the h.265 with the e uh hevc codec mm -hmm. uh encoding is is able to compress uh 4k video down to the bit rate that you would suspect from uh 1080p. HD, yeah 1080p so isn't that doesn't stand a reason that 1.2 or 1.4 for 8k down to 4k Right. From a lot of the examples I've seen, and everyone's going to kind of Adobe when they come out, everyone's going to have their own implementation of uh, H.265. So it's not like anything set in stone. But generally speaking, what I saw is that um, if you want uh, 4K, if you want to compare the two, it's about double. And so what I mean by that is that uh, a 4K video uh, that looks as good in H.265 as H.264 is about half the size, which would be two 1080p streams. Uh, worth of you know lower quality if you want to say that so uh, let's say that you you know um, they have a codec limit of 100 megabit h265 could make it look like a 200 megabit h264 video while running at h265 that's about the numbers I was roughly seeing from a lot of the early examples of these chips Th that could change as things develop because once again it's like everyone's going to implement in their own way and they could find different ways of doing it but it's one of those that I'm still not saying but if you were to do 4K, like I, I want to see higher bit rates from 4K is really what I want to see. But that's not going to happen unless solid state gets better. And even with H.265, um, to me, you know, uh, 200 megabit 4K is about a good mark for H.264. H.265, I think at 200 megabit would look brilliant. Uh, but if a chip could perform that, who knows? So it, it's one of those situations where I think all we're going to get is a few spec upgrades because uh, they've already seemed to master autofocus. Um, I don't see them doing anything more with resolution or bit rates unless they go to something proprietary or they go the black magic route where they're like, oh, our pocket camera can only handle like decently three or four SD cards, you know, because that's something that uh, black magic pocket owners like me have to struggle with is like, make sure you've got one that's fast enough or shoot at like a lower bit rate which if you don't want to do raw, there's quite a few that you can use, but it's not like you can use any card you want. The GH4, you can pretty much plug in any card you want as long as it's decent and not worry about it. It's going to work. So I don't see that happening with a, a, uh, the GH5 having any better resolution or any better bit rates unless they start going super specific and saying, oh, you can only use Panasonic SD cards or you can only use certain U3 SD cards or something like that. So those SD cards are coming. It's not saying that they couldn't do that, or uh, provide that feature where they say, hey, if you put in a better SD card, I'll give you a higher bitrate option on the camera. That would be exciting to see. Um, I'm just hoping for better low light performance. I would love to see uh, better low light. Um, obviously, it's not going to have any of the stuff that we've seen a Panasonic patenting over their sensor technology. 
because uh, I think that's way too soon for any of that stuff. It's going to be the old technology. I'm just hoping for a better chip that allows for better low light. So let's uh, talk about that then. What would you like to see in a GH5? Because uh, I've got my list, and I'll, I can start so that <laughs> way it gives you time to think about it. Uh, number one, you know, a 4K footage from the GH4, it, it's good. It, it looks nice. It's very usable. But in my opinion, in my experience, the, the image resolution for 4K out of your GH4 doesn't quite compete with some of the two, uh, twenty and thirty thousand dollar cameras that are out there on the market. So a little more resolution in, in that zone would be really nice. Um, I would like to see some of the menu things fixed. Uh, that's actually one of my biggest pet peeves is that even though they're releasing new firmware updates for the GH4, they have yet to fix all the little quirks that bother me, like the screen timeout for your displays, the audio, and your settings features. Uh, also, I wouldn't mind seeing some better audio interfaces. The preamp on the GH4, it's a little bit iffy. It's not horrible, but uh, I have to be extra careful with, say, a lav mic when I'm uh, providing it to the GH4 because uh, if I have it set up for a Canon camera and then I plug it into my GH4, it will actually blow out the inputs even with the volume turned down. Now, the other thing I'd like to see is maybe a little bit better uh, SD card setup. And what I'm talking about there is I'd like to see two SD card inputs, you know, maybe chained recording or something like that. Otherwise, you know, low light, I mean, we can always ask for more dynamic range in low light, but yeah. those are you know, with the, the problem I have with that for a micro four third sensors, we're kind of bumping up against the limit guys. You know, physics, you physics 16, yeah, physics here. are involved. The sensor is only so big and there are two ways. Uh, I mean, there are more than two ways to increase low light performance, but once you've done, you know, a backlit sensor and you've uh, done some special prism type technology and stuff like that, you really end up having to reduce the megapixel of the sensor itself. So mm -hmm. you'd have to go lower than 16 megapixel, and I ne you need about 8 meg in order to accomplish 4K shooting. So there's your limit for Micro Four Thirds camera in general. And I might be, it's a little bit more than 8 meg, I believe. It's like 8.21 mm -hmm. meg for uh, 4K shooting. And that's where I got the, the possible 8K shooting is, well, we have a 16 megapixel sensor. If you could somehow uh, get stuff out of there that fast. And the other thing I'd like to see is global shutter on the GH4. I don't know if any of those will be available, but they're all things that have been starting to show up in other cameras. And it doesn't seem unreasonable since Panasonic is usually a little bit ahead of the curve on this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Devin? You got anything to add to my list or anything else sure, that you'd like to sure. see? Uh, one thing I'd like, I'd like to see 200 megabit at 4K. I know that sounds silly, but I feel like that would add a whole lot of uh, information to movement in 4K mode. Um, while it hasn't, it's not one of those things that's like been obvious or necessary. I feel like having that extra bit rate at 4K um, because all this test where people are like, look at how great this 4K looks. I agree, it looks great, but they're always doing tests with still objects. And I feel like once motion starts to get involved in there, uh, I start to see some of the codec, which is pretty bad if that's like the first thing that's it's being captured to. Um, so other people may not, you know, care, may not see it. It may not be important to them. I can kind of see side by side, be like, you know what? It'd be great to have that extra 200 megabit. I don't need raw. I don't need ProRes. Um, just a higher bit rate, H.264 would be great. H.265 at 200 megabit would probably look pristine and perfect. So it would be great if some of that was possible. I'd also like to see the 4K at 60. That would be great to see too. Uh, that would definitely require 200 megabit because trying to do that at 100 megabit would probably look about as bad as the 96 uh, frames. Is it 96? 
FPS that yeah, it does? Yeah, 96 FPS? frames per second is uh, that's at 1080p, I believe. You, you can't do that at like in a, there. Right, and it, it does it does that at 200 megabit, and that already looks pretty choppy from what I've seen. It, it's it doesn't look fantastic. It's not nearly as bad as Sony's 960 frames per second for <laughs> two seconds. So come on, you got to give them sure. a little bit of credit. Sure, sure. No, no, no. So, um, but I'd like to see 4K at 60. I think that's definitely doable if they can get the bit rate up to 200 megabit. Um, and uh, you know, it'd be great to you know, possibly get into higher resolutions, but that of course requires more bit rate, which requires faster memory, which kind of limits the kind of memory you can put in your camera. I'm not sure if two SD card slots is realistic in a body that small. I don't know if you've ever seen a cross section of a GH4, but it is cramped in there. I'm surprised the thing doesn't overheat, uh, but that is probably one of the most, it's, it's already such a good camera. It's kind of hard for me to add what I want to it without sounding unrealistic. Well, yeah, yeah, no. I've got one other thing that I'd like to see on the GH4, and uh, that is actually a completely unhinged frame rate setting where I can set like 22 or 23 frames per second or mm -hmm. 18 frames per second. I, I know a lot of people are aiming for, you know, a higher frame rate so they can do slow motion. But for me, a lot of times if I have to shoot, I don't know, uh, not you don't do this for corporate work, but if you have to shoot a fight scene, for example, uh, maybe mm -hmm. you're working with two or three actors or actresses that aren't very good at hand-to-hand -hand combat and you need to film that in such a way as to make it realistic having the ability to go down in frame rate instead of up in frame rate means that in post i can just crank that back up to 24 frames per second and sure. now i'm getting fast action and i'm able to sort of plan and plot each of those moves uh, it's also really nice too if you just want to bump it up a little bit for a slightly slower effect, but you don't want to go so far as to go up to, you know, 96 frames per second or 60 frames mm -hmm. per second. You just want to maybe go to 48 or, you know, you go, go to 28 and a half. I don't know. I mean, you know, it, it doesn't seem you know that unreasonable to ask for that, you know? No, no, it doesn't. Um, does the GH4 still segregate files at four gigabyte marks? Uh, no, no, you can get bigger than four gig. Uh, it doesn't break them into pieces. As a single so. file? Yeah, as so. long as you format. Okay, so the trick is you got to format in the camera. If you format okay. outside of the camera, you have to make sure that you're not using uh, what it's not NTS, Cat32. Yeah, so if you do that outside of the camera, you're going to mess yourself up, and the camera will actually give you a warning saying this card is not formatted for 4K recording. Uh, once you get into the camera, no issues. You don't have uh, separately chopped up files for okay. recording. Because I, I suffer with that with my G h3 also whether, no frame or no not yeah no recording limit on the gh4 uh i mentioned this before but if you don't know that uh gh4 can go all the way i mean you can record for until your disc is full basically now if you're shooting at 4k your uh 128 gig disc is only probably gonna get you about like an hour and a half maybe uh, it's or if you're shooting at like 200 mm -hmm. megabit kodak something like that but uh, for people shooting long events and stuff like that, shoot 1080p, shoot at a reasonable um, uh, container, like a 50 megabit container, and now you can go for basically the length of an event on a 128 gig card. Really well, handy. That's that's where I'd like to see the dual slots. As much as I don't think it's physically possible without increasing the camera size, um, I would love dual slots for dual recording. I know most people like to have them for uh, slamming cards in left and right for recording a long event. But I feel like uh, SDs are becoming so big now. We're selling 250s. We're selling 512s. That, uh, that for, to me, is not a concern. What's a concern to me is if memory goes bad, which has happened to me more than once. So it's one of those things where I'd love to 
always shove two in there and record it both simultaneously. And if there's ever a failure, it just doesn't matter. I don't need to carry around a separate pack with my camera to get a second recording on it. Because right now, that's that's something that dual slots would totally take away is me carrying around another box to have a backup recording. Yeah, and something I used to avoid uh, religiously, and I, I'm kind of backed off on it a bit, is I used to only record on smaller memory cards. I limited myself to 32 gigs, so I never lost more than a couple of hours worth of footage if something went sideways. Uh, now, uh, <laughs> with 4K, I'm, I'm shooting on these... Uh, these transcend uh, 128 gig cards. And so if I lose that and I'm shooting at 1080p instead of 4K, I could lose an entire day worth of shooting on a single mm -hmm. card. It is a little nerve wracking. I haven't had anyone fail on me yet, knock on wood, but you're right. There is no backup at all. And if you're shooting like a wedding, for example, or something that's right. really critical where you can only do it once. And if you mess up, you can't you're... ask for a second take. Exactly. Then you're SOL. Now, I do know a few wedding photographers that do the whole staged thing. And I don't know if you've seen this, Devin, but they go out after the wedding and have everybody get dressed up the day after and then stage all their photography for their wedding after the wedding has happened. And you can get some really good results with that, but you have to really talk your customers into that sort of thing, right? Well, and, and one of those, uh, and I have seen that before, um, I think it's a mixed bag because you're right. There's a lot more control. There's a lot more you can do. And then I feel, too, part of it is that you're missing some of the energy uh, from the day's events. So, you know, to, there's there's a reason for doing it either way. But I think part of it, too, is as a photographer, is you're trying to capture an emotion and a feeling in the scene or in the event, what's happening in the moment. And you might lose some of that if you're going back to shoot something that's already happened. And you, you can, you know, tell them to act it up and sell it and everything else. But it's just... It's one of those things that's a slight thing that, you know, it depends on what works better for you. And I have seen it before and I've seen great results with it. Me, on the other hand, I'm not confident that I'd be able to get the kind of energy and excitement uh, the day after the wedding as opposed to the day of. Now, let's move on to a couple more topics because, as usual with Devin's show, we go long. <laughs> um, I've got two more things Thanks, I wanted to discuss. Uh, first of all, uh, let's take a second and talk about that Linus Tech Tips uh, video uh, sure. showing 4K compression on YouTube. Um, if you watch the video, it's actually really good. It's in-depth. It's kind of nerdy on the Kodak and video compression side. Uh, but basically, the findings are that if you upload at 4K, your 1080p image on YouTube looks better. Is that kind of what you gathered, Devin? Yeah. Um. I mean, it's, it's really fascinating when you go into... Uh, the, the back scenes of YouTube. And I, I saw this video a while back because I'm I'm a huge fan of the Linus guys. And um, it's really fascinating because when you upload a video to YouTube, YouTube literally makes like over 18 different proxy copies. It might be less now because there's more compatible devices, but they would do a WebM codec. They do an MP4 codec. They would do a 3GP codec and they would do different resolutions of all those codecs. Uh, what the Linus team had found out, and I had double-checked with my own testing, is that when you upload 4K, it triggers a different encoding process in YouTube. And so then YouTube puts a higher bitrate 1080p out than if you just upload 1080p, uh, which is kind of interesting. And it's a small thing, and it's one of those things that you really only notice it side by side. Uh, but YouTube's thinking is that if you're uploading 4K content to us, you it, this must be a higher production per se. I mean, that, that's not an absolute rule. Trust me, there's tons of trash on there for, in 4K. <laughs> but, um, the the, I, the general idea is that most of the 4K content 
only comes from people who have higher quality cameras. Um, and so therefore, YouTube goes, there's probably more detail in the camera. It makes more sense to allow more bit rates for 1080p. I'm sure too, YouTube doesn't want to go back and re-encode all 1080p's because they, they've already done that previously. If somebody uploaded a video that was 1080p way back when 480p was the only standard on YouTube, YouTube eventually came out with the 1080p copy of that video because YouTube always keeps the originals just in case they need to re-encode um, or if anything happens to the proxies and stuff like that. So uh, it's it's really fascinating and the video is a great watch and it's in the show notes. Uh, but the gist of it is, is that if even if you only have 1080p, if you upscale to 4K and upload to YouTube, the YouTube then on its 1080p version of that video will give you a higher bit rate, which especially if you've got a lot of action or it's a highly detailed thing like a video game, uh, especially something like Rocket League, where it's got a <laughs> lot of detail that's far away. Because uh, trust me, I've watched so many streams of Rocket League. Uh, temporal compression for streaming on Twitch and stuff like that gets totally destroyed. Uh, by something like grass moving very quickly because uh, it's a lot of tiny, detailed, high-contrast objects that are all moving in random directions. So it struggles uh, with that kind of stuff. So uh, in that kind of case, up uh, upscaling to 4K and then uploading uh, may get you better results on 1080p. And feel free to try it yourself to see if it really makes a difference. But uh, it's just one of those things to keep in mind as YouTube keeps charging ahead trying to figure out uh, what's the best way to deliver video to the masses. Um, one of the things I want to ask now is how do you think it compares to Vimeo? Is your 4K <laughs> upload going to create a 1080p image that's as good as Vimeo? Oh, man. I just I remember the Vimeo days. Everyone loved Vimeo. Everyone's all about Vimeo. Don't get me wrong. Like Vimeo is a community. I love there's so much good content on Vimeo. There's so much I love on Vimeo. So don't think that I don't like Vimeo. Uh, it's just on a technical part. I think that because in large... Uh, the company is kind of paid to upload better uh, versions of your content and everything else. You want your content in AP, you need to pay us for that. Um, they just don't have the kind of market share that YouTube does, so they don't have the kind of money to have the kind of servers that YouTube does. So quite frankly, I don't expect Vimeo to have 4K. Uh, and I'm not going to complain that Vimeo doesn't have 4K because I just don't think that they're really capable of it from a technical standpoint because they don't have enough cash in it. I love the community. I love a bunch of the videos on there. I've got a bunch of favorites and everything. I love going back and watching old shorts and stuff like that on there. Uh, it's just for so long, so many video guys were like, Vimeo has better quality. And I'm like, if you pay them, they'll give you 1080p. Otherwise, everything's 720. And people would argue about how the 720 is better than YouTube 720 and everything else. But I'm like, on YouTube, I can do 1080p. And it looks a lot better than my copy on Vimeo. Um, but the one big thing that Vimeo is great at is keeping your video secret. Um, because even if you put your video as unlisted on YouTube for a client, there are ways that people can stumble across that video. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to go into it. It's a big technical process, but unlisted doesn't mean it's protected. It means it's mostly protected, but somebody could still find it if they try hard enough. If you Vimeo password protect a video, no one's really going to be able to find it. And frankly, I hate making a private video and sharing it with someone else's Gmail account because that gets complicated for a client to be like, wait, I have to sign in to watch a video. I don't understand. So, well, the other thing you could do, and this is uh, sort of behind the scenes, but if you upload it to your Google drive account, as opposed mm -hmm. to YouTube, it uses the exact same compression that's used on YouTube. It renders it the same manner, but it keeps it completely off of YouTube. So the only way they can get to it is through a drive link. If you put it on YouTube and you make it unlisted because the way they generate the code for the fire, you know, the link, 
link name, you could theoretically just scroll through link names like that and find unlisted videos mm -hmm. and view whatever you want. Uh, as far as Vimeo goes, I'm, I shouldn't be so hard on them. It's just for many, many, many years, I've been harassed <laughs> by other editors and filmmakers that are like, hey, where's your reel at? Um, oh, it's on YouTube. Uh, well, what? Why is it on YouTube? You know, why aren't you on Vimeo? Like, obviously, you're not professional if you're not on on Vimeo. And I mean, maybe. And to be honest, that's true. I don't know, but those are the same people who usually will say something like, uh, "You know, it, it, your video being professional has nothing to do with what camera you shoot." Like, it, it, there's a little irony because I've had a few guys talk wah, to me wah, about wah. that with Vimeo. Yeah, and they'll be like. They're the same guys who are like, it doesn't matter if you shoot with a T2I. What matters is your lighting, your character, your actors. Like, that's what matters. And then when I show them my clip on YouTube, they're like, why is it on Vimeo? Like, professionals use Vimeo. I'm just like, what? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. <laughs> so. it's just, It's been a, a fight for many years. And I think Vimeo has some good points. Uh, definitely the ability to download video content and to share mm -hmm. with clients and so on. And let's be honest, the layout for Vimeo it's always been classier than YouTube. Those guys have a little more yeah. style than YouTube. YouTube's kind of just been like, Bleh. I love the website layout. It's super clean. I like that they aren't about the view count either. Uh, YouTube, like people prejudge a video based off of view count. Vimeo kind of tucks the view count away because they don't want you to prejudge anything other than the title and the thumbnail. So, and I kind of appreciate that from a aesthetic standpoint. Now, the last thing here I wanted to discuss, since we've kind of, uh, I'm going to drop out the price drops on the 5D Mark III, and uh, you guys can find that in the show notes, as well as a wacky cell phone. And actually, I'm going to show this real quick for the video watchers, just because, look at that thing. It's wacky, right? Okay, that's enough of that. I remember when laptops were like that. Yeah, with flip-out cameras yeah, and everything. Would flip. All right. Now, the last thing I want to discuss here is actually from MIT. Uh, MIT has come out with a new way of collecting data from individual pixel sites on a sensor that allows you to do basically built-in HDR. Uh, the way they do that is when the pixel sensor becomes saturated in a given point, it continues to dump out the data until it captures its last round of information and isn't completely saturated. That prevents you from getting sort of a blown out section. Uh, here's an example here, and I've got a link to the video in the show notes. What do you think about this HDR mode, Devin? Uh, you think this is going to be something only for still photographers, or do you think we could accomplish this in video as well? Oh, I absolutely think we can accomplish this in video, and I think this is the only way we could do it in video. Um, HDR, which you've probably not been a fan of. just Not super fan of HDR. Uh, well, because mostly HDR people associate with the style of HDR, which has basically just been oversaturation and sharpening. Now, they are actually going through, most people are going through a process to create that image, but the image usually just ends up with something that looks over-sharpened and oversaturated. And that became a look, and people liked it because it was different. And I don't have anything against people uh, who like that kind of look. And there's a few images I have on my wallpaper collection that look that way too, because there's a few that I think it really works well for. Um, but the way that HDR would typically be shot is when a scene is not moving, uh, you would take multiple exposures and push them all together in Photoshop and end up with uh, your highlights not being blown out and end up with your um, dark spots being properly exposed. So they aren't blacked out. So it's about bringing everything wide in, you know, just, a beach or something like that shooting towards the sunset bringing all that down into something that is eight bits that you can look at uh, without you know missing any detail and so it only really works for scenes that are still because you have to take multiple pictures 
and and pretty much before HDR was a thing, all cameras came with a setting to do multiple exposures uh, on a click. It would you'd hear the shutter fire off several times, but usually like right next to your I want to shoot nine frames a second mode is usually a mode called EV, which is you take a picture and it goes, you know, uh, however, yeah, whatever basic you bracketing like bracketing, you can on, yeah. yeah, on any Canon camera, you do bracketing for like wedding photography. So if you flub a shot, you can get the exposure right in either the lower exposed or the overexposed. Right. And it's, it, it's kind of like uh, recording a, a quieter audio track uh, just in case you blow out your mic. It's the same concept there. Um, in this case, people were just pushing them together to create one image. Now, part of the problem with that is when you're doing bracketing, is that it's three separate photos that all take place at three separate periods of time, uh, which can be, you know, not a big deal. It could be a really big problem depending on what you're taking pictures of. In this case, they're doing this kind of HDR. It's it's not really bracketing, but the way that they're kind of doing this where they're letting sensors that normally uh, pixel is blown out to return and then reevaluate the scene and return and reevaluate the scene, it allows it to... Uh, ba it basically redefines what dynamic range is for a sensor to take in because it's allowing when it gets blown out to come back and reevaluate the scene. And so it's one of those that I could see this being used in video. So far, all the examples I've seen are not super high quality. I think that's because their algorithm is young. I think as their algorithm gets more mature, it'll probably end up with sharper images uh, because a few of the examples, you'll still see areas that are kind of where you're losing detail because there's like light bleeding around an object, uh, you still see a softness there. You're still not seeing a huge detail. Uh, but this is super exciting stuff because it's kind of redefining what is dynamic range uh, by allowing these pixels to keep capturing information instead of just saying, oh, I'm done. It's a white pixel. Deal with it. Um, and so it really opens up the door for what could be done in video. Um, you know, I wouldn't say this negates having ND filters or anything like that, but it does definitely make it exciting to see this kind of technology come out because I, I, obviously for science applications, imagine how hard it is to take pictures on the moon when you have everything is totally <laughs> black, everything is totally white. Uh, technology like this is super uh, important for, you know, um, investigating science and stuff like that. But as well as this for photography and video guys, I think this is super exciting stuff. The quality, like I said, isn't there, but I think it could be. I think if they work on their algorithm and keep, uh, pumping away at it, this could be some really interesting stuff. Well, the interesting thing about uh, this particular method that they're using is that they're having to matrix individual pixels and address individual pixels on the bus to bring it out of the the uh, sensor. Um, if you're not mm -hmm. familiar with sensor technology, uh, the reason we have rolling shutters is because it reads one line of pixels to the bus at a time and then sends that out. Or if you have global shutter, it's able to pool the entire uh, sensor image onto the bus and then send it to the CPU. With this, it's allowing individual pixel sites to determine that they're oversaturated, dump what they have, and continue to re-expose and evaluate while the underexposed areas are exposing. So that means that you're having to address every single pixel on the sensor individually in order to accomplish that. Uh, that's pretty technical, and you're talking <laughs> uh, bus bandwidths to your CPU that are going to be you know, five or 10 times bigger than they are because now you can't just use a serial path. You can't just use like 10 mm -hmm. parallel paths. You're going to have to be able to address whatever the megapixel is times the number of sensor sites or groups of sensor sites in order to accomplish this. So for photography, I see it coming 
probably in the next yeah not too far but for video it's going to be extremely complicated because now you're having to do that every frame so the amount Mm -hmm. of uh processing that's going to have to be required on the in you know internal cpu is going to be fairly intense the other thing is how do you meter with something like this because now you can only meter really for the darkest area you can't yeah. meter for anything else because the other areas are going to continue to dump what's on the sensor and uh continue to re-record until the last exposure range of the sensor's exposure to whatever environment it is so what do you do for you know well and, and, and keep in mind light? too it's not just the sensor here too it's also the algorithm because as you can see uh from the example with image a and image b and i apologize for those listeners uh, the image from their camera looks like some kind of multicolored kaleidoscope. And that's because that's the raw, uh, per se, colors that that pixel identified. Um, and that's because that pixel was just slammed with tons of light data, and it has a hard time interpreting what it all really means. Their algorithm is what turns the image B into image C, which actually makes it something that looks how we expect it to look, something normal. And that conversion process still isn't perfect. And you can see lots of artifacting and kind of pink edges to objects and things like that because it's not quite perfect. Uh, But it is impressive to see that algorithm that's able to extrapolate that kind of data, which is really random data to any normal person, but a computer is able to figure it out. But uh, while this is kind of way ahead in the future, I mean, as we keep going up in frame rates and we keep going up in Ks that we're recording, seeing our bus path is already growing exponentially at the same time our processor speed is growing exponentially. I don't see that being too far in the future uh, for this kind of stuff to happen. In in terms of like practical, practical use in metering, I see this really being a big thing for anything that has trouble metering, like cell phones and everything else. They'll just go for whatever is dark and then meter past it. I mean, if an algorithm is already interpolating uh, the image in post-processing, I'm guessing that before it takes the picture, that same algorithm is going to apply certain characteristics to how it should meter um, and how it should look for what objects to meter off of, per se. How would you determine your shutter speed for something like this, then? You know what I mean? Oh, whatever your normal shutter speed is. The whole idea of this is that you can you can overexpose a frame and capture a lot of detail. And so your shutter speed would just be whatever's normal. Like if you look at image A, that's a normal image you would take if you expose for the building. If you expose for the sky, the building's dark. So I feel like you just expose for whatever you want to be properly exposed. This just makes sure your highlights come back when you're done, as opposed to I I would never expose for the sky unless I'm going to ignore my foreground. So in this case, I think in terms of metering and shutter speed and everything else, you're just exposing for the object and this is making sure your specular highlights will come back with actual information. Yeah, I, you know, we'll have to pay attention to this as it develops to find out more about the technology itself. Uh, but looking at their examples, and I'll bring this back up on screen one more time, uh, kind of addressing what you're talking about is the the colored areas that they're showing right here, which is the extra information gathered. In order to gather that information and then interpolate it with their algorithm, they are going to have to individually access each one of those Mm -hmm. pixel sites to pull the information. So I'm not sure if it's a continual stream as the pixel gets saturated or if it's uh, the way I understood it, I was thinking it was actually last capture. So it kept dumping its own stuff out until the, the least exposed area gets exposed. And then it takes the last capture of that time frame in order to, 
to gather the information from the section. But it could be that it's continually funneling out that info from that section and then uh, interpreting either, it somehow. Either way, they would have to be individually addressed because in order to reset the pixel, in order to retake in the information, I imagine that data needs to reach some kind of a controller that then goes, oh, you've been, you know, you've been overblown, reset, and then recapture. So I imagine they still would have to be individually addressable um, because that's not something that a normal sensor can do where it could tell one pixel to re you know, recapture. Yeah, so keep an eye out for this. Really cool stuff. Uh, definitely something that's extremely interesting and ultra nerdy and technical if you're into <laughs> that sort of thing. That. And in fact, this cast uh, today uh, has basically been all of those things. The nerd cast. Exactly. Now, Devin, where can people find you before we wrap up the show? Oh, I guess they can find me on Twitter at MaverMC. Do you have anything else you want to add, man, before I run us out? We're up to an hour and a half now, no, so half hour no, passed. Over. We need to close out the show. <laughs> we're, as always, I've made us way late, so we just need to close the show. All right, on that note, guys, you can find me on Twitter at DSLR Film Noob. You can swing over to DSLRFilmNoob.com. You can also find us on iTunes. There's a link to that in the notes of the YouTube video. We're on SoundCloud. Uh, also, a few of you have requested an RSS feed for the audio version of this, if you have one of the outlying podcast uh, apps on your phone, just send me an email. I'll post something on the site eventually when I get around to it. Uh, but make sure that you write a review on iTunes if you can, or you know, comment in the YouTube section because Devin and I have to put these show notes together every day, and we're trying to figure <laughs> out what to talk about, what you guys want to hear about, and what we want to drive home as cool things to discuss. So your input helps us with the show. Definitely send us in what you got. On that note, guys, we'll see you next week on another exciting episode of DSLR Film Noob Podcast. <laughs>